listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. We have been going through a series in the book of John. And we are meeting, entering into a new chapter in the book of John. So far, John has been talking about things that Jesus did, his interactions with people outside of, um, predominantly outside of the disciples, things that happened out in the world. Now we're moving into what's called the upper room discourse, where it changes tone, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is the innermost teachings of Jesus to the people that he spent the most time with and is preparing to take over leadership of his ministry, in, in essence. And in that, we see a change of tone. It's a very intimate section, the next um, couple chapters, and it's full of love. Uh, The word love occurs 31 times in the next four chapters, as opposed to six times in the past 12 chapters. He wants to show his disciples the full extent of his love right before the cross. And... In addition, he wants to give them a new identity. As Ricardo talked about last week, Jesus came knowing who he was. None of us knew he had to tell us. And so this is his chance to talk to the disciples and say, okay, because of who I am, this is now who you are and what that means. And so that frames this passage we're going to get into today, um, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So in John 13, 1 through 17, that's the part we're going to focus on. There's a lot of good stuff that happened before and after, but we can't spend the entire year on this book of John, so we're just going to focus on this particular section. So we can go ahead and read it. Now, before... The feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, remember when Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his time to die. And so before he said, my time hasn't come, hey, guess what? Now it's time. So his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, talking about his disciples. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, noticed Jesus' identity. This is who he knows he is. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he has come from God and he is going back to God. That's what he knows about himself. Um, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied a basin. Oh, sorry, didn't tie a basin. Tied the towel around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing 
you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Talking about Judas. Remember, he's going to go into this intimate discord or discourse with Judas there. And he knows what Judas is going to do, and he's going to let him do it, because he knows that's part of what has to happen. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right. For that is what I am. His identity again. That is who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That is our passage. And we see it. Peter throws a fit. Not unusual for Peter. But we have to go and go, why is Peter throwing a fit? You know, it might be a little awkward to have somebody come and, especially, you know, Someone like Jesus, come and wash your feet. You're like, oh, no, Jesus, I've been walking in the dirt. My feet are dirty. Don't do it. And that would make sense. But then Peter doesn't say, don't wash me. He says, don't wash my feet. He says, what? you can wash my feet and my hands and my head. So it's not that Peter is opposed to Jesus giving him a partial bath, which you would think would be the awkward part. But that's not what Peter is throwing a fit about. And he wants Jesus to give him a whole bath instead of a partial bath. And because he's not, he's throwing a fit. And Peter, Jesus goes to Peter and his disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? Most of us here, we don't. <laughs> and so that's where we're going to dig in, is what is it that the disciples understood about what Jesus did that we don't? Peter is really uncomfortable. Why? In order to understand why Peter and the disciples were uncomfortable by this, we have to understand the world that Jesus and his disciples came from. Now, I've got, I drew you a picture. This is an, oh, not that one. That one. There we go. This is an oversimplified diagram of the world of the Jews. If I gave you a picture of the temple, it would be more complicated. And so notice the temple is more complicated than this. This is simplified for conceptual purposes. Now, this is in essence 
the different courtyards of the temple and who was allowed in. And it gives us this microcosm of what Jewish society was like at this point in time, okay? Now, in the middle, that little white box is called the Holy of Holies. This is where originally the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the most sacred place in the temple that represents the presence of God on earth. And this is where nobody can go except for the high priest who can only go in once a year when he's offering sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation of Israel, okay? The next one is only for the priests. This is called the holy place. This is where priests that have been purified and are doing the daily work of mediating on behalf of Israel can come in and out, okay? Notice they're a little farther from the presence of God, but they're not outside of the holy place. Next layer is called the court of Israel. This is only for purified Jewish men, Jewish men who are considered clean. They have been following the religious rules. They've been doing the right things. And this is where the sacrifices that regular people do for themselves on behalf of their sin, on behalf of things that they've done wrong, this is where that happens. Okay? The next layer is called the court of the women. Now, men can be there and children can be there, but this is as far as a clean woman and a clean Jewish man, or, I mean, a clean Jewish man can be there, not unclean. Um, but this is as far as a clean Jewish woman can go. She can't go any farther because women are considered less clean than men on a religious framework, okay? The last one is called the court of the Gentiles. Anyone can be here, the impure and the pure, the non-Jews and the Jews. Anyone can be here. This is, this is free for all. This is if you want to worship God and you don't know anything about this whole God thing, this is where you can be. And in between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the Temple Mount is this black section that is called the soreg, or the dividing wall. It divides the Gentiles from every other court. And along the wall, there are do not enter signs. We can go back to that other picture. This is one of the actual signs that was on the temple from Jesus' day, okay? And they had it in multiple languages, and written on it, it said, no foreigner may enter within the balustrade, great word, around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be, he be put to blame for the death which shall ensue. Fancy words saying, do not enter or we kill you. Okay? Welcome to the temple. Now, <laughs> that is what was all around. This was a serious matter. Gentiles do not enter or you die. If you were unclean, you can also have problems, but mainly it's Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, who do not follow the Jewish religious code, who are not circumcised, you cannot come in. All right, we can go back to the picture of the temple. Now, Gentiles, well, Gentiles could cross the wall and come closer to the presence of God if they did a few simple things. First, 
all they would have to do was follow all the Jewish laws, eating codes, dressing codes, washing codes, festivals, the rules that dominate every single aspect of life, if they follow all of them, even the ones not in the Bible, then they could start becoming Jewish. Next thing, they have to give a sacrifice. Next thing, they uh, have to be circumcised, regardless of the age they are. And then they can be baptized, in a sense that would be them being born again Jewish. Okay, So they are no longer considered Gentile at that point, they are considered Jewish. Now the challenge with this is for a Gentile who is undergoing this whole process, you become impure if you touch anyone who is a Gentile. You can't eat with them, you can't live with them, you can't, you can't hang out with them. And so if a Gentile is converting to Judaism, they either have to convert their entire social structure or social network and household, or they have to leave their family and find a new Jewish family, okay? There weren't a lot of Jewish converts. <laughs> there were quite a few. The Bible talks about God-fearing Jews, or not, God-fearing Gentiles who, like, who would come into the temple to worship, who loved God, but they didn't necessarily want to take the leap into becoming closer to the presence of God, okay? And this really did, these, these, these lines between the courtyard regulated not only worship life, but social life on a daily basis. And Jews would not eat with Gentiles because by doing so, they're making themselves unclean. Jewish men who were clean had to avoid their women in their household pretty much half of every month because the women were considered unclean. They couldn't even sit on the same chair or sit at the same table that their unclean women in their family had been at, okay? So you really, you segregated yourself from anyone who was considered unclean, impure. So your lepers, your, your people who have different diseases, your people who have done various sins, all of these people, if they touch you, you catch it. This impurity is contagious, okay? Now, you'll notice some Gentiles could change where they were at, but there is other people who could never change. They could never become closer to God. They are stuck, okay? Your women are stuck. Your Gentiles who don't want to become circumcised are stuck. For people who cannot become pure, you are stuck. Now, this brings us to the relationships between people in the different categories, okay? People at this time had this huge value for this concept of honor and shame. Honor means basically you have a good reputation. People think well of you. You follow the rules of your group well, and so everybody else is like, hey, that's a good guy. Like we, we, hear, we hear this a lot in, in the New Testament where it talks about the Pharisees would fight for the best seat at a banquet hall. They would want to have the invitation to the wedding. The disciples were always fighting over who is the greatest, who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Those are concepts of honor. Who among the Jewish men are the most honorable, worthy of respect, worthy of dignity, get to be treated the best, and everybody thinks they're awesome? In a high school kid terms, it's who gets to sit at the cool kid table, okay? The opposite concept is this concept of shame, which is who doesn't get to sit at the cool kid table? Not just who doesn't get to sit at the cool kid table, but who doesn't get to sit at any table at all, right? 
this is the concept of because of the way you act, the way you dress, the way you are, you can't be in the inner circle. You have to be somewhere else. And not only are you shamed, but your shame is contagious. You, somebody else sits at the uncool kid table, they catch the uncoolness. And vice versa, you get brought into the cool kid table, you catch the coolness, right? So that's those concepts of honor and shame, which you see all throughout the Bible and um, is very important from a religious sense because this concept of honor was not just human, it was also divine. It was this idea that certain, God liked certain people more than other people and so would bless them. So wealthy Jewish men were considered honored by God. That's why they were wealthy. God liked them more. He gave them more stuff. Okay? People that were unclean, you remember the story of the man born blind? He's born blind because he does not have the favor of God. Somebody did something bad in his line that has made him unclean and impure. He, God doesn't like him as much. Okay? It's this idea of God likes some people better than others, and you're kind of stuck where you are. Right? Now, this concept of honor and shame, in the marketing world, we call it branding. Right? It's what people think of when they think of you. Now, within your subcategories, you have subcategories of coolness factors, right? You have some people, even within the Jewish men, that are cooler than others. Like your Pharisees, they were really cool. Everybody wants to hang out with the Pharisees. And then you had your uncool, your tax collectors, right? Nobody liked the tax collectors because they hung out with the Roman Gentiles. Nobody likes the Roman Gentiles, and so if you hang out with the Roman Gentiles, we don't like you especially. You don't get to come to any of the parties, right? Nobody even wants to be seen at your house, okay? And also, you have some people that they like least of all. They really didn't like the Gentiles, okay? They Roman Gentiles even more so because Rome had conquered them, and they didn't like that they were conquered, okay? But then there was the Samaritans, they really, it was beyond not liking, it was full-on hating to the point where we will walk out of our way to avoid even going through their land because we will made be impure by walking through their land, okay? So, even in the Gentile world, there's the Gentiles we like more than others, right? Now, this is, and at the very bottom of the coolness pile are the slaves, the Gentile slaves, they are bought and sold. They don't get to choose what they do, what they don't do. They are owned by other people, and they don't get any honor at all, ever. You don't even have to say thank you when they clean your toilet for you because they are a slave, and that's what they're supposed to do, okay? No honor, just shame, okay? And this is an important thing between the lines is that from the bottom to the top, you give honor, these people have to honor these people who have to honor these people who have to honor these people. You give them respect, you think well of them, you think they're awesome, okay? And between the lines, like, put it this way, your, your Jewish men could do actions, they could do things that would make them uncool, but they're not, in essence, uncool. Whereas your women and your non-Jews, you're never going to be cool. You have been born separated from God. You have been born at a couple things well, and you were born in shame. Your identity 
Where you are born cannot be changed unless you are born again. And so you have been born into shame. Okay, so what does this have to do with foot washing? Well, yeah, yeah, they wore sandals on dirt roads. People got dirty feet. That's practical. But remember, the Jewish laws of purity went beyond physical hygiene, okay? Your physical hygiene was a reflection of your spiritual purity. That's why they had those containers of living water that you would use to wash your hands before you eat, you wash your feet. That is how you cleanse yourself in order to make sure you're ready to join the family of believers without making anybody else impure. And you're ready to be in the presence of God without being shamed in the presence of God because you're unclean and impure. Okay? So it's for physical and social and spiritual cleansing. And if you don't do it, you risk becoming unclean, displeasing God, and being separated from the community of believers. Right? So who does the foot washing at this period of time? This is important to understand it. First off, foot washing was a very, very common thing. Not just the Jews did the foot washing. Greeks, Romans, everybody did foot washing, not just as hygiene, but as a religious ritual, okay? And, but even in the Roman and the, the um, Greek world, the same people did the foot washing as in the Jewish world. And it had a similar meaning to it, okay? So, women wash the feet of their husbands. This is an expected duty that young wives are told before they marry, that every night before bed, they are to wash their husband's feet. Even if they are a rich woman with an entire household of slaves, a slave doesn't get to do that job. That's the job of the wife to do for her husband, to show him that she adores and honors him. Okay, remember? Honor. Children wash the feet of their parents. Show them honor. Disciples wash the feet of their rabbis or teachers. This is a spiritual discipline that they do. It shows their piety, their humility, their honor for their teacher. And they had a rule that if there was a Gentile convert with their, ra- with their rabbi, that they would wear different clothes than everybody else so the audience would know that they weren't a Gentile slave washing the feet of the rabbi, that they were a Jewish or a Gentile proselyte washing the feet of the rabbi. And finally, in hospitality, when a host gave a dinner, it was expected that the first thing that people would be able to do before dinner was to wash their feet, okay? If it was a poor family, the host would just give them water and they wash their own feet. If they're a wealthy family, then the host gives slaves to wash the feet of the guests. Now, which of the slaves get to do it? The slaves also have a hierarchy of who is honored and who is not. The Jewish slaves don't have to wash the feet of the guests because they have higher status. The only slaves that have to wash the feet are either the female slaves or the Gentile slaves. The slave that has the absolute lowest status of the entire household gets to wash the feet of the guests. Foot washing symbolized humility, servitude, respect, love, and hospitality. Who doesn't do the foot washing? The people on top. Honor goes upstream, never downstream. 
never, ever downstream. And foot washing was a powerful symbol. About the same, not long before this event occurred, in the Roman world, the tyrant emperor Caligula forced all the elders of the Roman Senate to wash his feet in public so they could all know who was the ruler, who had the honor and the authority. Compare that with our Jesus. What did Jesus just do? (laughs) John gives the details of Jesus taking off his outer clothes and wrapping a towel around his waist. There's a reason he included those details. Jesus was intentionally dressing himself like a Gentile slave. And that is why Peter was scandalized. He said, no, Jesus, you are better than that. You are my rabbi, my Lord, my teacher. You are an embodiment of the honor of God. You do not demean yourself like that. He said, if you're going to do it, at least wash the rest of me because rabbis baptize. Priests do ceremonial washings. If Jesus would wash the rest of him, this order is maintained. Then Jesus would be behaving the way that a rabbi should. He would not be embracing shame. And Jesus refuses. He says, let's go back to verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to the place. I'm just going to read from my paper. Different version, sorry. Um, He returned to the place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, You will be blessed if you do them. He just redefined blessing too. (laughs) Now, that question Jesus asked, do you understand? Peter understands. That's why he's struggling. Peter was showing Jesus his love through refusing, but he had a love without humility. He had a love that wanted Jesus to maintain that place of honor. And Jesus said, no, This is a precursor to the cross. There is no honor there. Peter had a love that wanted to maintain that seat of honor, that that best place. Who is the greatest? The disciples liked the Jesus of the transfiguration. They liked the Jesus of the triumphal entry. They did not like the Jesus of the cross or of the foot washing, because messiahs do not die and rabbis do not wash feet. They did not want the kind of glory that Jesus was bringing in, because he was turning their world 
out of order. He was making the honor flow the wrong way, and that was not okay. Now, Jesus knew what he was doing. It was intentional. He was physically enacting a parable to show them what his love looked like. Remember, he is showing them the full extent of his love, and he says, Peter, you don't know love yet. And when Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, the word for Lord is the word that means one who has authority over others, the master. He is saying full on, yes, I am the master. Yes, I am the Lord. Yes, I am the one with honor. And I am voluntarily taking the place of the deepest shame And not only that, but I am telling you to do the same thing because you are supposed to follow me. And everything in Peter is saying, no, not that, not that. It's uncomfortable. It's scandalous. It is shameful. And Jesus says, yes, it is. Take up your cross next, (laughs) right? Because Jesus knows his death will be the deepest shame of all because Jews do not die on the cross. Jews are stoned when they are put to death for things that they do wrong. It is only the Gentile slaves and the rebels who die the kind of death that Jesus died. Now, Jesus could only go this low because he knew who he was in the Father. The identity of Jesus is what makes this okay. He wasn't becoming the Gentile slave because he knew he was a Gentile slave. He was becoming, he could do that because he knew he was Lord and Master. And he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so his identity did not come from the social structure. His identity did not come from gaining honor, gaining prestige, gaining people thinking well of him. It did not come from the circumstances of his birth. They came from his identity firmly rooted in who the Father said he is. And the Father says, you are mine, you are from me, and your honor comes from me and not this world. His identity didn't come from the role that he played, foot washing versus seat of honor. It didn't come from the circumstances of his birth, his ethnicity, Jew versus Gentile. It didn't come from being a male versus female. And it didn't come from his economic circumstances. Whether he was a slave or free or rich or poor, Jesus could be in any of those social categories and still have the same amount of honor because his honor came from above and not from what anybody on earth thought of him. Jesus could embrace the lowliest of positions because his identity was rooted in his relationship with the Father. And he says, go and do likewise. Our identity does not come from where people find us in the temple. Our identity comes from Jesus showing us the full extent of his love and saying, you are mine and I am sending you and you have my honor so they can shame you. 
all societies are divided into categories based on different characteristics, religion, economics, wealth, occupation, ethnicity, race. We all divide, and Satan loves those divisions. And he says, certain people are born to be in certain places, and certain people are born to be honored. Certain people are born to rule, and certain people are born to be ruled. And he loves to make our identities those of shame or based on our honor, and not based on who the Father says we are. As a Christian church, we are given a new identity rooted in Christ outside of the world in which we live. Ephesians 2, 12 through 18, Paul writes to the Gentiles, and Paul was very passionate about this. You can see in almost every epistle, he goes over the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, rich nor poor. He goes almost every single time, but we're going to look at this one. Talking to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, remember, physically in the temple, they were far off and separated from the presence of God, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, the ones that do not get along, he has made one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know what word that was? Soreg, that wall in the temple, dividing physically Jews from Gentiles. Dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, in other words, the rules to be part of the cool kid table, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near the presence of God. And for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I have this visual of the temple walls and Jesus coming through with the Holy Spirit like the Hulk and just going, smash, smash, smash. <laughs> and just going, that is the world that I wanted. The Holy Spirit it's no accident that the first thing the Holy Spirit did when it was poured out on people was to have them speak in tongues and languages from around the world. Because from Genesis to Revelations, God's heart was for every tribe and tongue and nation to belong to him, to be one in him, in all of their beautiful, eloquent, crazy diversity. And he said the only way it's going to happen is through the Holy Spirit because Satan loves to create those walls of hostility, to say, we don't want them in here with us. So that when you get to heaven and you, God says, hey, you have those ones here with you, do you want to hang out with them now? What do you do, leave heaven or hang out with the people you didn't like, right? <laughs> 
But that's God's heart from beginning to the end is bringing peace between the cool kids and the uncool kids because in him, we are all just as uncool. He took our shame and made us one. And you notice that when Jesus was doing his work, he liked to scandalize everybody. He would say that a Roman centurion had faith and the Jews would be scandalized. He would say that children had faith and he scandalized people. And he would talk to the Samaritan woman at the well and once again scandalized people because he said that what mattered was not the circumstances of their birth, their age, their class. What mattered was their faith and their relationship to God. And he healed them of their sins and not their ethnicities. They were still Samaritans. They were still Romans. They were still Greeks at the end of it, but they needed healing of their sins. The Jews would look at them and say, you need to be healed of being a Gentile. And Jesus would look and say, no, I love the Gentiles. They need to be healed of being separated from God and not recognizing the presence of God when it's incarnated among them. Oh, the Holy of Holies was empty. The presence of God was not there because the Ark of the Covenant was gone, and when the presence of God came, the Jews couldn't see it because it was out talking with the Gentiles. And the Jews said, we can't go there. Our Jesus, our God won't go there. Our Messiah doesn't do that. Our Messiah doesn't wash feet. And God said, yes, he does because he loves them. When I read this, when I think of this story, I think of a story that I heard from a dear friend of mine. She is one of the most gifted Bible teachers that I've met. She's a woman who loves God and who is just a dynamic pastor. I was blessed to be able to learn from her and be mentored by her for a period of time. She has years of ministry experience. She has a seminary degree from the UK and the US, because two is better than one, right? In addition to another master's degree. And when she was sent from her home church to work as a missionary in a new place, the church she was sent to refused to let her even teach children's church because she was not qualified. Funny thing, they'd never heard her teach. They looked at her and knew she was not qualified. When she was given a chance to teach, they were surprised and said, oh, I guess we can let you teach sometimes. She spent years ministering to all the different ethnic groups in the congregation. And many of them rejected her. They said, we don't like people like you. You are the wrong type of person. You don't belong here. You are dirty. You are thieves. Your kind of people aren't to be trusted. Go back to where you came from and stick with ministering to your own people. In her home, she is looked at with honor and respect because she's a dynamically gifted, educated woman. In her new context, she was looked at as shamed because she is the wrong kind of person. She was born in the wrong place. She speaks with the wrong kind of talking. And she doesn't have the right qualifications to sit at the cool kid table. And yet she keeps serving faithfully among this new people group. She serves her own people and she serves everybody else because she knows that she is called and she will keep serving the people who have rejected her. She told me once how she spoke at a women's retreat. And during that time, another woman came up to her and said, 
My family grew up hating people like you. In fact, we hated your people so much that if my family found a child like you in a cemetery, we would tie them to the gravestone and leave them overnight. We hated you. When, we saw, when I saw that you were going to be speaking, I almost refused to come. And when I came to this retreat, the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I want to publicly confess that I have sinned against you and against your people. And so that woman knelt down and she washed my friend's feet in front of everybody and said, forgive me for my sins and my friends that I will forgive you on behalf of people like me because of what people like you have done. <sighs> my Ugandan friend still struggles to minister in Southern California. She is rejected because of her accent, the color of her skin, and the fact that she's a naturalized US citizen and not a native-born one. For over two decades, she has ministered in a context that says the circumstances of one's birth are more important than anything else and says that her identity is one of shame, and she cannot be honored because of it. Church, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and wants to redefine what it means to be a family of God and what love means, where our identity is found. Our identity is not found on who gets to sit at the cool kids club. It's found in our rootedness and our relationship to God. And first off, I want to speak to those of you who know what it is to be shame. Jesus knew it too. Jesus would have already been condescending himself by incarnating as the emperor of Rome. That would have been a step way down from where he started. And he said, that is not far enough. He said, I am going to be born the bastard son of a carpenter in a poor family, in a barn. And we, I'm going to flee as a refugee to another country to save my life. <sighs> Jesus could have been the high priest of Israel and still been serving below his pay grade. And he said that wasn't enough. He had to take the lowest of the low of the low and die a death reserved for the Gentile slaves in a world that only looked for those who were honored. Jesus is your honor. He gives you his when you have none. And for those of you who have felt the pain of having an identity that brings you shame and not honor, I want to pray for you right now. In the name of Jesus, those of you who have felt that your identity in the world is like those of the Gentile slaves, that people look at you and when they see you, they say, You are dirty. He calls you clean. When, in the name of Jesus, I pray that he would meet you in your place, that he would meet you 
in your brokenness and in your pain and that he would take it away and give you joy knowing that you have been given his identity as a child of God. When others call you slave, he calls you free. When others say you do not belong, he says you belong to him. And when others say you are not worthy and ungifted, he looks at you and says he is your worth and you have been gifted with his spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray that he would take your heart, that he would fill you with his spirit and that you would be comforted knowing you can go no lower than the God of the universe has gone. And to those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, have have not experienced that sense of shame, the sense of shame that gets you at the level of your identity because you're just, you've never seen it, You've you've never lived on the other side of the wall. May Jesus meet you there too, and may he meet you like Peter and say, is your identity rooted in me, or is it rooted in the standards of this world? Will you let Jesus wash your feet? Will you let him take care of the parts of you that you don't necessarily want to look at and would rather not have Jesus messing with? When you say, Jesus, bathe all of me, I don't want you taking care of that part. I'll take care of that myself. Jesus says, no, you need to be washed. Your feet need to be washed. Your identity needs to be rooted in that of Christ. Your honor needs to come from how low you can go and how you carry your cross and die to yourself and find that Christ is all and is in all and at the end of the day, that is the best thing. I invite you to embrace Christ's humility, to empty yourself, become the slave of all, and to go wash the feet of the people you despise. You can go no higher than Christ has gone. Jesus, we pray for you to break us of the ways that we have found honor that is not of you and the ways that we have been shamed that are not of you. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would come and bind up the brokenhearted and be close to those who are crushed in spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would meet with those who need to be touched by you, that you would let them know that you, they are in the presence of God and loved by you. Give us your identity your closeness to your spirit, and your place in your kingdom. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.